Hey y'all, Rick Houston here, and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Heel State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers, and they weren't new. They had been been around the block a time or two. What's the first deal they built, I bet? No, no, you know, I think they were, the the pliers had been red before, but paint had worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, a.k.a. Dr. Daniel Pierce of UNC Asheville, to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this this souped up car, and he he complained that the government gave him these piece of crap, cheapo cars, and that, that were really no match. But he thought he was doing pretty good, and then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappears. But then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him. And as he said, it was a game of chicken, and I was the chicken. And so he ran off the road. And actually, he was the guy who who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy's steal when Junior got tangled up in a a barbed wire fence. So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast, available on YouTube, DailyDownForce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Scene Vault Podcast. Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at PolePositionMag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item backed with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At PolePositionMag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com. Eric Estep here. One of my favorite parts of being a NASCAR fan is collecting diecasts. It's how I got my start on YouTube, actually. To me, a room is not complete until it features shelves of NASCAR diecast cars. It's as good a time as ever to continue your collection or begin an all-new one by pre-ordering your favorite driver's 2022 next-gen diecast at LionelRacing.com or at any authorized Lionel retailer. Lionel is the official diecast of NASCAR, and don't miss Lionel Racing's NASCAR Authentics diecasts at a Walmart or Target near you. Not only is Lionel the official diecast of NASCAR, but they're also official supporters of the Out of the Groove Podcast Network. So what are you waiting for? Head to LionelRacing.com to order your favorite driver's 2022 diecast. Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. Presented by QWare. Maintain excellence. 
we took Mark to, uh, I think, qualified eighth and finished tenth, and I said, man, this is easy. Little did I know. He was just on the edge of being successful, and then when he left, he kind of threw himself to the wolves. If we found out something that made us go faster and be a better race team, we could keep it here longer than if we were in Charlotte. The day NASCAR and all of us associated in any way with NASCAR forget its past, that's the day we don't have any future. Hello, I'm Steve Wade. And my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast presented by QR. And Steve, I don't know about you, but we are recording this on Monday, and about 24 hours ago, you and I both experienced something that I hope we don't ever experience again. I can rest assured I agree Good with you. Not. Actually, that was the second earthquake that I had ever experienced, and it's been several years ago. We had some tremors that we felt here, and that time, it was just like maybe a tractor trailer rolling by the house or yeah. maybe pulling into the driveway. But this yesterday, that got my attention. <laughs> I'm not kidding. It scared the crap out of me. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the um, earthquake, it registered a 5.1 on the Richter scale, and that was the strongest earthquake in North Carolina since 1916. Yes. It was 5.2 back then and near Asheville. This was near Sparta, North Carolina, which is off of Interstate 77 headed to Virginia, and not far from you. So I would think that you felt it much stronger than I did. I just felt the bed shake a little bit, and I have a ficus tree in the bedroom, and it shook a little bit, and the cat stopped <laughs> cold in his tracks. <laughs> and I knew oh. what it was. Well, you know, Sparta is actually where I used to work at the Allegheny News. Right. And so I know a lot of people on Facebook, and the images that they started posting, nobody got hurt. But the damage, there's some pretty significant damage. Yeah. I saw some pictures of yeah. what happened in yeah. Sparta. Yeah. And you're right. It was pretty significant. Thankfully, 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 nobody was hurt. One of my first thoughts after all this happened and we kind of collected our wits a little bit was I thought about these scene vault newspapers behind me. <laughs> and so I immediately thought, well, let's see, could I go out and could I walk 140 miles today <laughs> <laughs> just so we could get that deal done? But, but thankfully, we didn't have any damage here at our house, just a little bit of frayed nerves. But again, Steve, I'm very thankful that none of my friends up in Sparta were hurt or injured. And there was some property damage, but it was the kind that you could fix and Right. It'll be okay. So that's two earthquakes down, and I hope there's not a third one. <laughs> I hope there's not a third one. But, Steve, this week we are going to share the first of what will probably be three installments of the interview that I did with Larry McClure. Now, Steve, there's no truth to the rumor that we are going to be changing the name of our podcast to the Larry Mack podcast because <laughs> we've been talking to Larry McReynolds and now we're going to be talking to Larry McClure, but I went up to Abingdon and that was the first interview in person that we have done. You had to knock the rust off a little bit, but the interview that I did, I really enjoyed sitting down with him and talking to him this week. He talks about Morgan McClure motorsports is kind of humble beginnings in the sport 
and how the team once had future Hall of Famer Mark Martin behind the wheel of its cars. So it wasn't until Larry got a call from Kodak and hired Rick Wilson as its driver that the team finally began to get some stability in the sport. That's what it took. It took a sponsorship for sure, Rick. We all know that. But to find Rick Wilson to be the driver, Rick was a competent up-and-coming driver, and that offered the team the kind of stability it needed. The two things fell in place. Competent driver, money. And I do want to thank our friend Jamie Bishop, who kind of helped track down some contact information for Larry. The team that he works for a lot is Henderson Motorsports, and they're based there in Abingdon, where Larry lives and where he still has that big shop complex. And Jamie was responsible for helping put us together. So, Jamie, again, for everything you've done to help us out, I truly do appreciate it. Hi, boy, Jamie. Steve, then in our second segment, we are going to go back to the July 7th, 1988 issue of Grand National Scene. That issue featured coverage of the Firecracker 400 at Daytona, which was won by Bill Elliott in a side-by-side battle with Rick Wilson. Rick Wilson, yeah. To the finish line, two or three feet was the difference. And as you'll hear from Larry, Rick's strategy late in the race didn't exactly pan out. Steve, there's also a feature story on Eddie Beerschwell and news that A.J. Foyt, drumroll please, was mad at NASCAR. <laughs> I don't believe it. They point mad at somebody. <laughs> and Steve, your commentary in this issue was a sobering reminder about how difficult this sport can be at times. The headline pretty much summed it up. Half a season to go. Let's keep them healthy. Yeah, it was a rough season injury-wise for drivers. Rough half season for drivers at that point. Your commentary dealt with a multitude of drivers who had been hurt in accidents in recent months, at least some of which were the result of the Goodyear Hoosier tire war. Right. The tire war did inflict casualties for sure. Finally, this week, we have new Patreon and PayPal support from Scott Burgess. So, Scott, thank you. Listeners, please support us on Patreon, support us on PayPal support QWare, support Brian Kelb. And listen, the support that you give us through PayPal, through Patreon, it goes to support the production of this podcast. And you have helped us get to the point where we're we're making some strides towards our goal. And I really do truly feel that way. I agree with you 100% reckon. Uh, to echo what she said, there's no way we could get to this point without the support of the listeners. Very much appreciated. So if you can help us out on a monthly basis, you can do that at patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash the scene vault podcast. Or if you would prefer just to do a one-time show of support, you can do that at paypal.me slash the scene vault podcast. Larry, first things first, how did the idea for Morgan McClure Motorsports first come about? Were you already racing up at Lonson Pine in Coburn or maybe there in Kingsport? But how did that start? Hadn't been involved in any kind of racing except uh, being a NASCAR race fan. And uh, I I bought a a Chevy dealership in Coburn, Virginia, and 
right up from Lonesome Pine Speedway. And uh, Connie Saylor, who was a driver for G.C. Spencer when he was racing at that time, was selling uh, tires over in the coal fields. And he stopped by and said, G.C. wants to sell his uh, his uh, number four race team in Western Cup. So we uh, we thought about it and, and made an appointment, went over and saw G.C. and bought bought uh, one car and two or three motors and a trailer and just some parts and pieces that he had so uh and he agreed to stay with us and kind of help us so we were just doing it to have fun i mean initially we had been to an arca race uh, uh and enjoyed it enjoyed being in the garage area and so we just started doing that and then fun uh we decided we wanted to be have a little more success so we we bought a couple of new cars from from mike laughlin and uh we hired tony glover and we started so as morgan mcclure's investment got bigger and we were financing it pretty much out of the chevy store as advertising uh as that investment grew and grew, we had to we had to get more serious about it, so <laughs> it was uh, it was it was hard for us there initially. But uh, in uh, let's see, when was it? I think uh, we got Folgers Coffee. Some people called us from Nashville, and and we put together a small deal with Joe Rutman and uh, ran Folgers Coffee in um, I think that was eighty uh, five, and. Uh, until you know up until then when we started in 83 we had mark martin we were just doing it finessing on our own no sponsor 83 and 84 we ran i don't know 10 races or something like that and then rutman all the races in in 85 and 86 uh that sponsorship went to hendrick and and we were sitting there you know sitting at the desk saying oh man i hope that telephone rings and it did finally uh kodak called us and 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 asked if we'd be interested in doing a 10 race deal for so kodak called you kodak their advertising whoever was handling their account called us because we'd been running pretty good with rick and yeah uh, you know they called us and asked us if we'd go to rochester and have a meeting with so wow so it was that's how we got started you went to that first race at Talladega with Connie Saylor, and the engine lasted all of 22 laps yeah. before letting go. Was there ever a sense of maybe we've bitten off more than we can chew here, or did you consider that just one of those things that you had to deal with when you were getting started? Well, the pieces we went to Talladega with with Connie uh, are the same engine parts that GC had, and, and you know they had had some time on them, and uh, I think at that time we went to a, a fellow in Ohio. I think his name was Ohio George, and he, he put that motor together. And really, when we took it off the dyno, the bearings didn't look that good. So we thought it might happen. But it was fast. Well, we were fast. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. And then when it broke, GC was good friends with a lot of people in racing. So Barney Hall and GC and... and uh, the number 11 car over in uh, the hauler there. He went over and, and we bought a couple of motors from them. So um, decided to 
you know, you had to put money in it if you wanted to run fast. So we got those two motors from, G from uh, what's his name? Junior. Junior. We bought two motors from him. Got the first and got it in the car, and our first race was going to be Charlotte. And by the time we got to Charlotte, we had talked ourselves in, we were going to sit on the pole. Well, actually, we missed that race. Wow. Connie wrecked in qualifying. At that time, you remember, there were four days of qualifying. Yeah, yeah. So that experience wasn't too good, but uh, we went along there and just kind of floundered around uh, after that until we bought a car uh, from A.J. Ford. And then uh, we took Mark to uh, Talladega and uh, ran fast with him. Qualified, I think, qualified eighth and finished tenth. And I said, man, this is easy. Little did I know. <laughs> so, anyway, that's kind of the way we started. And Now, Larry, how did the deal with Mark Martin come about? Well, he just didn't, he didn't have a ride, and, and we were Charlotte and running pretty good. And if I'm not mistaken, uh, Barney, Barney Hall said, you ought to talk to him. You know, Barney knew everything about everything oh, yeah. in race. Yeah. And he was, uh, so uh, we get, just called him up and talked to him, and uh, he came to GC's house. That's where we were keeping the car, and he put his seat in and that's it so he he only raced for us about you may know for sure yeah. but i think about six races or something right, right yeah what was your impression of him at that point oh he could drive the wheels off of it i remember taking him to darlington and it was one of those days when it was over 100 degrees over there i don't know if we gave him water all day <laughs> we'd like to <laughs> we'd like to cook him but, but he, and he finished the race so uh, I thought he's a great race car driver, and at that time he was so much better. Than we were. You appeared to be just doing super speedways mm -hmm. at that point. Was that maybe because they pay more, or maybe you didn't want to get your stuff torn up on the short track, or what was the purpose of just doing the super speedways? Both. You know, if, if you take a car to short track back in, you're just going to use the car up. Yeah. And we didn't have that many people. We were just. We just had G.C. and Tony and a couple of people, and it, it was hard on us anyway. And we were having to drive everywhere, uh, no airplanes at that time. And, uh, you know, we just decided to – we had more of a chance of having success at uh, at Speedways. Larry, when we talked to Steve Mill for the podcast, he said that G.C. Spencer apparently wasn't too high on Mark as a driver. Is that maybe why he didn't come back for 1984, or was there maybe something else going on? Uh, no. Um, GC wasn't, you know, GC, at that time, GC wasn't too high on him. Uh, he didn't know if he was tough enough, and I said, well, damn, go on, GC. We, we like, killed him over Darnickton. Anyway, uh, GC was from old school, and he looked yeah. at things like him, like he did it, and they'd race all night and drive all, you know, at, at, drive all night and, and race all day so but he he uh he was a tough guy and he was a tough guy to get close to especially since him being a driver yeah so yeah. I, I just never did work out now i have to ask okay was there a point where you looked at mark and the success that he was having and 
you know, if we maybe hung up on to him just a little bit longer. <laughs> well, I, I don't. It, it would take him more than that. He was. Uh, he was. He was a good race car driver. And he, he had a lot more. Listen, I didn't have any experience. Yeah. Tony had some experience, and and he was would have taken us a while to to be successful. And uh, you know, for about four or five years there, we worked really hard and got our team up up to par. Uh, Never, never having won a race, we didn't know for sure if we were up to par or not, you know. So uh, we went through several drivers, and we had Rick Wilson almost up to where, I mean, he was really running good. I think when he decided to leave us, and I think that was in the end of 88, uh, we were like top 10 to points. And we were just, he was just on the edge of being successful, and then he... When he left, he kind of threw himself to the wolves, and then he had to fight that fight himself. But yeah, but uh, Mark would have, you know, if, if he would have stayed with us, and he said, "Well, I'm sure if when he looked at us, he didn't know if we could be successful." So, not only me, but it takes, you know, he would have to want to drive for us, and that's kind of what, that was important to me having somebody that wanted to drive for us. The team started out in 1984 with Lenny Pond, but then got Tommy Ellis on board pretty quickly. Was it hard swapping out drivers like that, or were you pretty much just looking for the right combination at that point? Well, you know, I'm sure it was uh, maybe I could have handled things a little bit better, but at that time I was just looking to, for some magic. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Lenny had been around quite a bit, and we went to a couple of fast racetracks, and and we did. We thought we might put somebody in there younger that uh, was more aggressive than, and could give us success quicker. And that's why we put uh, Tommy in. And, and and man, he was a he was a tough guy. He knew what he wanted <laughs> for sure. But he he was a little bit uh, hard to get along with, you know. But other than that, he was a good driver. Well, you, I still you... talk to him. <laughs> Okay, so I gotta watch what I say. <laughs> no, no, no. Let me tell you a story about Tommy. Well, see, it's funny you say that because my next question is this: It seems like anybody who ever worked with or raced against Tommy Ellis has a story about it. Yeah. What's your best Tommy Ellis story? After we had let Tommy go, he was in Mich. We went to Michigan to race, and he was uh, racing an ARCA car in Michigan, and. Uh, <laughs> I went up, stood in front of his car, and he always had a he had a guy with him. It was his personal kind of personal guy, and I can't remember his his name. I think he's since passed. But he uh, Tommy was practicing. And I spoke, and he didn't speak to him. And he he was over at his race car, and he walked over there, and he said, uh, "Here, uh, uh, take my wallet. It's got all my friends in it." <laughs> <laughs> and turned around and got back in the race car. Never did speak to me. But since then, we've, you know, we talk about stuff, you know. You mentioned Folgers Coffee yep. came on board as a sponsor in 1985. How big a deal was it to Morgan McClure Motorsports to have at least a little backing to help make ends meet? Oh, it was a big deal. It kept us going. We could... Actually, we probably couldn't have done it uh, without them, and and that and it wasn't a great big deal. But at that time, we were small, so it didn't take a lot. And uh, you know, we had failures all through that time, mechanical failures and wrecks, and uh, we just we ran pretty good, but we didn't, but we didn't finish good. So 
but Folgers was definitely a feather in our cap. And then, of course, Rick Hendrick uh, figured that out, too. And he, he went after them and, and got them. Now, the team at that point was based here in Abingdon? Yes. Okay. How did staying up here, rather than down in the more typical Mooresville, Charlotte area, how did that impact the makeup of the team? Well, you know, Tony was from Kingsport. Okay. GC was from Kingsport in that, that area. I live in Abingdon. Um, I'm a Southwest Virginia boy, and I, I didn't know at that time, and I, I don't think it made as much difference. I think maybe at that time it could have been a plus because if we found out something that made us go faster and be a better race team, we could keep it here longer than if we were in Charlotte. Now, uh, we just we made our investment. It's kind of like we made our bed and we were going to lie in it. And I, and I probably uh, had I been a little smarter and maybe maybe had taken on s- some more advice from people, I would have moved because that question has been asked to me hundreds of times, and I just wanted to stay up here. I mean, we, we won 14 races, so God just blessed us and gave us some good people and, and good, good hard race car drivers and some luck. 1986, Rick Wilson becomes your driver, and then at Michigan halfway through the season, Kodak come on the car for the first time, and that seemed to give you at least a little bit of stability when it came to a driver and a sponsor. Now, you've already talked about how Kodak came into the picture. See what I did there, Kodak? Yeah, come yeah, up. Yeah, okay, yeah, all right, okay. Yeah, Just want to see if you noticed. You pretty quick. <laughs> I was pretty proud yeah. of that. How did, how did you land on Rick as a driver? Well, at the beginning of 86 season, well, prior to the beginning, we had to make a choice between Rutman left, Rick, Rick was available. He he was courting us pretty heavily, and Davy Allison was courting us. So I could, I wow. think I could have had either one of those guys. Uh, we thought Rick told me he had a sponsor and he had Oldsmobile, and with Davy he couldn't really promise us anything. I mean, I had a meeting with him. I think in Rockingham, Davy, and uh, of course Rick was calling and calling and calling so we we chose rick i mean that's and then and then uh, we started you know started running pretty good so we had to teach him a lot he had never been in a car like this and uh he's you did not have to try to push a string try to make him go faster you just have to keep pulling him back (laughs) (laughs) or he'd get over his head and wreck you know yeah yeah that was his thing now, I, I'm still on the Kodak thing. Okay. Nobody had ever reached out to them at all. Oh, yes. Okay, okay. Oh, yes. Yeah. They had done a deal uh, prior to the start of that season with a, a gentleman over in uh, North Wilkesboro, North Carolina, and he had bought f- five or six cars and had them in a building and said he had a race team. Well, uh, they they tried to make, I guess, the first seven or eight or ten races and didn't make a race. So whoever was handling their public relations for them called called us and said, "Do you want to come to Rochester? Would you come to Rochester and talk to us?" And and here's what we got. And I'll tell you what the figures were. He, they wanted us to run ten races for ten thousand. I mean, for a hundred thousand dollars. 
in a, in my mind, I, I'd like I wanted to have that audience, but I knew I couldn't do it for that. Right. But I called Rick, and so and we called our people from Oldsmobile, and we all met in Rochester with with Kodak. And I'll tell you about that meeting if you want me to. Absolutely. We, we had. Uh, you are never going to tell. You are never going to hear a reporter say, "No, nah, I don't want to hear about well, that." He, <laughs> this guy walked in. I hadn't met him before. Nice, kind of quiet guy. And uh, the PR guy was giving his little pitch, and then uh, he just asked a question: Why should we choose you, you guys? And uh, we told him. We introduced our Oldsmobile people. We had their backing. Uh, Rick, good-looking guy, uh, very photogenic. Would, would we felt like would do a good job driving a race car, and our team was uh, we were good people. So, um, and the guys, we talked a little bit, and he said, "Now I understand you all want to do. Uh, you, you want to hire us for ten races?" And he, yes, I said, "Well, if I'm not mistaken, I have to go back and look back." If you can't pay pay at least fifteen thousand a race, you don't need to be doing this. Well, they had done this deal. They'd given all their money to this other guy for the whole year, and he didn't do anything for him. So, yeah. the guy got up. He just got up and left the meeting. We didn't. He didn't say, "I'll get back to you." Anything. He just got up and left. So. We got up and left, went across the street at, at a hotel, spent the night, and came home. But uh, then they later, uh, the next day, called us and said, we're going to take you up on that deal, which was great for us. Well, that opened the door to what became a pretty successful relationship, definitely. It, 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 was, it was pretty good, yeah. We enjoyed it. Uh, <laughs> loved their money, great. But listen, some of the nicest people, best people I've ever met in my life were Eastman Kodak people. 87, 88, 89, top 10 finishes were still kind of hard to come by. Were you satisfied with the performance, or were you kind of frustrated, or what was your thinking during that time? Frame? Well, I wasn't satisfied with the, with the performance, but we were just trying, we were trying to gain experience. We were trying to learn how to race. Okay, and yeah. and and we couldn't say we were better than Rick or, or you know, that kind of scenario. So we just said, well, let's just hang out together here, and see if we can't get better. And like I said, right before he left us, we were start. We were I think we were in top ten in points. We'd gotten, uh, I think five, fifth or sixth, and and then he left uh, or told us he was going to leave at Watkins Glen uh, that year, and I'm not sure what month that is was but he was going to leave so I told him I said if they offered you that much money you'd be a fool not to take it so uh, we he left and we had Kodak so we we got back into hiring drivers again which you probably got the record of that oh yeah 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 I got plenty of questions okay. trust me <laughs> was there ever a point in those early years where you thought about maybe walking away yeah, was there ever a point where it was close to being too much? Well, I had uh, my brothers, three brothers, and Tim. And Tim and I were pretty much, like I say, uh, subsidizing the racing uh, out of the Chevy store. So it got pretty tough on us. I mean, uh, it wasn't as expensive as it is now, but all things are relative. 
he got, uh, and they said, well, maybe, maybe we should just quit. We can't afford to do this. And I said, no, nah, just y'all bear with it. I think we're, we're right on the edge of having some success. And uh, they said, okay. So we, we hung in there. But we did several times think, well, maybe we've just over our head here. But what kept you going? Just not wanting to quit? No, not wanting to quit. Don't You know, I don't like to get beat at anything. I don't, yeah. uh, you know, everybody, if you're a competitor, you want to, comp- you know, you not only want to beat somebody at that race, but you, you want to stay in business. So we did. We did. Daytona, 1988, the Firecracker 400. Rick Wilson is this close to winning that race. I mean, literally three feet. What do you remember about that weekend? What do you remember about the race? I remember it was hot as heck, and and uh, well, it was Daytona in July. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> and uh, I think we had uh, I think we had Bill Elliott down about three laps early in that race, and we were really fast. And Bill made up three laps, and partially because we didn't race him that hard, and because we didn't think that he could come back from three laps, I guess, but he did. And I think uh, he beat us out. Uh, he beat us there. We finished second, I think, in that race. Is isn't that right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah literally, yeah. You, yeah you, I mean, it was right there. Rick and Rick and yeah. Bill Elliott. But were, I told yeah, Tony side by side. We were there was a caution not right before the end of that race, maybe three or four laps or something like that. And I said, "What are you boys going to do?" Uh, Rick said, I, "I want to slingshot him." I said, "We're leading." <laughs> Well, they let Bill get in front of us and then couldn't slingshot him, and we lost the race. So I, that's what I remember. I remember when they said we were going to slingshot him, I just laid my radio down and went on the garage area. Did you really? Yeah. yeah. I mean, you could see it. I mean, Dad, Bill had been there a lot of times. Yeah. We had never been there. So uh, it left, you know, left a bad taste in your mouth, but at least I knew we were fast, starting to get better. And, Starting to get better, starting to get better. And we had, listen, we had, our race team, you said, why do you, why did you all spend most of your time focused on speedway races things? Well, we spent a lot of time aerodynamics, working on aerodynamics. We got as much wind tunnel time from GM as we could get. And we were like beggars, you know, we were saying, hey, we can help us out here, give us some time. And, and our cars were pretty good. We always had a, fast race car on the speedways and i guess that was our forte ended up being speedway racing was that the race that maybe put you guys on the map when it come to being considered a competitive race team or was that maybe still to come i think it was still to come okay i, I mean really in uh golly it was it was almost but it didn't happen being realistic, I think we tried to be realistic for a long time. Uh, we were just a little bit away, but we we knew that we were getting closer and getting Rick closer. You have talked about this a little bit, but Rick did wind up leaving the team at the end of the 1989 season, and you said that it was his decision. Was there any kind of negotiation with him saying, you know, could you stay for this or that or Whatever, or was he pretty much out the door regardless? No, he, he, uh, 
he gave us an opportunity to give him the same money that was offered to him, and I, I and we offered, we we said we can't afford it. Yeah, and we couldn't we couldn't afford it. Yeah, and uh, I, we wished him well. Thank God, and it, it, you know they, it was an emotional event for us because we still love Rick Wilson, but uh, he chose to leave, and we tried to help him after that. And it, you know, there's a big deal about racing. This uh, uh, a driver and a crew chief working together. That's a big deal. Being able to communicate and, and read each other's minds and things like that. And it, he and Tony were kind of like that, I think, when he left. But he left, and we were on the search again. Hello, Scene Ball Podcast listeners. This is Eric Quinn from QWare. I'm so glad that racing is back. It's nice to see it on TV. And of course, it's been nice to continue to be able to listen to the Scene Ball Podcast with Rick and Steve and all their guests. And of course, they just hit the milestone 100th podcast. And I'm so proud of what Rick and Steve have been able to do with the Scene Ball Podcast in preserving the history of this great sport. There's a lot of time and effort that goes into everything that happens at the Scene Vault Podcast and at QWare we are proud to be a part of it. We also know that it takes a lot of time and effort to take care of the places where you work. And we want you to check out QWare and see what we can do when it comes to facility maintenance. We are the most powerful, most simple to use computerized maintenance management system on the planet. So check us out at QWareCMMS.com and see what we can do for your facility maintenance team in helping to keep your campus and your facility up and running. Now let's get back to the podcast. Morgan McClure Motorsports, Steve. What do you remember about them from those earliest days? Well, you didn't pay much attention to them, Rick, because there were always new teams coming into the sport each and every season. And most of them, you could tell by just looking at them uh, and the personnel they had, there was just no comparison to the bigger teams that were the most successful teams. They came and they went. And at that particular time, when I saw Morgan McClure Motorsports, I really hardly gave it a second look. That's the way it was back then. I don't know that I would consider them field fillers by any means, but they weren't exactly running with the leaders every week either. What was the consensus in the garage about them? Well, as it built up to the fact that they were continuing to make some races and stay afloat, the consensus was that they could catch some kind of break. In other words, if they could find the money that all teams need to perform well, and if they could find a driver that they liked and perform and could keep a hold of him, they'd have two very important things, money and talent. That's what they were at the time. They're still searching for it. So the consensus was, hey, they're trying. Steve, you know who I would compare Morgan McClure Motorsports to? I'm thinking maybe Furniture Row Racing. Yeah, that's a I, very good comparison. That's, I think that would be pretty close. Both were based outside the typical charlotte Mooresville Corridor. Furniture Row, of course, was in Denver. They were all the way out in Denver, Colorado. Uh, well, yeah far outside yeah. Charlotte, and then Morgan McClure was up in Abingdon, Virginia. Both teams went through some growing pains early on when they struggled to be competitive. 
they went through a number of drivers before finally settling on one. And after getting up to speed, both teams had to have been considered one of the best in the garage. Furniture Row won the championship. Right, right. Morgan McLaren didn't win a championship, but one day, Tony Five, only two years in a row with Sterling Marlin. And another with Ernie Irvin. So that's right. There was a time when you went to Talladega, Daytona, especially where the that four car was the team to beat. And then in 1995, going through the stats, I didn't realize how successful they had been that year, but they finished third in points. I think they won two or three races with Sterling. So yeah, yeah they did very well. Absolutely. And they were the picture perfect example of what I've been talking about, which is mean you start off slow with a team. They don't get much recognition, but finally they stick to it long enough to get some needed money and get some talented drivers. That's exactly what happened to Morgan McClure. They took it to the top. And sadly, Steve, both teams were eventually forced to close the doors not long after they had been so successful on the racetrack. Finances, make that a lack of finances, Rick, was a problem in both situations. I don't know that I realized that Mark Martin had driven for Morgan McClure so early on in their tenure in the sport. Connie Saylor drove their first race at Talladega, but then Mark Martin came on board for six races in 1983. Yeah, Mark was just trying to keep his feet in NASCAR. His team had gone under, his own family team by that time. And he was trying to find a situation where he could stay in NASCAR. Unfortunately for Mark, that did not turn out to be the case. Now, Steve, Connie Saylor had actually driven for G.C. Spencer at Daytona and had that very well-known, very recognizable, very popular YouTube clip of him wrecking at Daytona in a number four car. But that was while he was driving for G.C. Spencer and before the team had gotten sold to Morgan McClure Motorsports. Now. Steve, we did talk about this a little bit when we had Steve Mill on the show. (laughs) But G.C. Spencer apparently wasn't quite sure if Mark Martin was tough enough. (laughs) Well, as you drive the race car. Mark Mark is not exactly the size of a linebacker. (laughs) But, uh, and also, this is before Mark started his regimen of exercise, weightlifting, and things of that nature. So he didn't look like much of a physical specimen, but hey, I always thought he was capable of winning races. (laughs) He might not look like a linebacker. He was more the place kicker. (laughs) (laughs) That's fair. (laughs) But Steve, to be fair to GC, 1983 was at a time when drivers were, they were a little bit bigger than what they typically are today. You had Buddy Baker. You had Tiny Lund before him. Richard Petty wasn't a big burly guy, but he was a foot taller than what most guys are today. True. And here's Mark, who looks like he's a school kid, basically. Yeah, exactly. And GC evidently just looked at him and sized him up at first glance and wondered if he could hack manhandling a race car the way that you had to back then. Now, this was before power steering. That's right. And was that, that, was, that was a good observation by GC because we've already described how Mark looked back then. But when he finally came back around 1988 with Jack Roush, uh, Mark had already started his physical regimen. And he was clearly a much stronger guy than he had been earlier. 
I don't think today anybody could ever question Mark Martin's toughness at no, all. Period. No, no way, no way. <laughs> <laughs> and let's but let's face it, uh, Rick. I think that uh, the attitude toward a driver's physical ability to race a car has changed. And that way, I mean, most of the drivers today are physical fitness nuts. Okay. I mean, Jimmy Johnson runs some marathons for crying out loud and other guys do all kinds of stuff that they never did in the past. And I even asked some people about that. Are these guys fit enough to do what they do? I can understand the big guys, but they're all fit enough to do what they do. And the, the answer was, well, they're in shape for what they do. But beyond that, I don't know what they're doing. And to be honest with you, that attitude has changed. Drivers are more physically fit on their own than they used to be. And I think that driving is also more of a thinking man's game than it used to be. I think that we are far, far, far past the days of having cigarette lighters installed in race cars. Exactly. That's my point. (laughs) (laughs) Steve, how big a deal was it that Morgan McClure was based up in Abingdon rather than Uh, Charlotte? Yeah, everybody's way of thinking when they first came in and they were based in Abington, that was a strike against them because as you well know, all the top teams are located in Charlotte. And the reason they were located in Charlotte is pretty simple and pretty, pretty interesting. If you ask me, you couldn't keep a secret. If you had all these teams in one central area, sooner or later, you know, they might swap out crewmen this guy gets fired, this guy gets hired, this guy goes here, that guy goes there. And what happens? Word of mouth starts to spread of what teams are doing down there. That, Believe it or not, that was one reason why. I've been told this by many team owners. That was one reason why they wanted to be based in Charlotte because there would be no secrets. Now, up in Abingdon, okay, you might have a great team going, but you don't get in on those secrets. <laughs> and that seems to be what everybody was thinking at the time, that Abington was a strike against the team. But eventually, no, it was not. Well, the flip side of that coin, though, Steve, is that, and Larry actually spoke to this, he said that when they did find something on the four car, that they could keep it secret right? for that's a little true. bit longer. So that's kind of a two-way street there. Going into... 1986, Larry McClure had two drivers who were really pressing him kind of hard to drive the four car. You had Rick Wilson and Steve, here's another one of those what if deals. You also had Davey Allison and both of them were pressing him pretty hard to drive the four car. Rick had some sponsorship money apparently, as well as some backing from Oldsmobile. And while Davey couldn't promise anything like that, and the deal went to Rick Wilson. And that was not the only time in raising that something like that happened. If a guy came to you and he had talent, you thought it was pretty good. If a guy came to you and he had talent and money, you hired him. We have had so many what-if deals on this podcast. What if Davey Allison gets that ride with Morgan McClure Motorsports? Once he landed with Robert Yates, he became the poster child for Ford. Right. right. And Morgan McClure Motorsports being a GM brand, an Oldsmobile brand, a, a Chevrolet brand, you know, so you take that out of the equation. And if you don't have Davey Allison with Robert Yates Racing, what happens to Robert Yates Racing? Who drives that car? 
I don't even know if Robert Yates Racing gets formed. When Robert was thinking about building a team, he was sort of on the fence about it. And it was Davey that came to him and said, I'll drive for you, Robert. You can do this. Now, if Davey had been with Morgan McClure, I'm not sure Robert Yates would even have a team. That is one of the things that I have enjoyed so much about doing this podcast is all those deals that were being discussed behind the scenes that we didn't know about. But when they do come to light all these years later, you kind of reflect and think about how different this sport might have been if they had, in fact, went through. That's right. Then came Kodak. Eddie Beerswell had that deal at the beginning of the 1986 season, but kind of struggled to qualify for races and on the track when he did make a race. The team that he was driving for was based out of North Wilkesboro, and it just was evidently thrown together, and not a lot of planning evidently went into it. But one day, the phone rings in Abingdon, and it's Kodak, and they want to know if Morgan McClure might be interested (laughs) in a little bit of sponsorship. What's Morgan McClure going to say? What's Larry going to say? Imagine that, a sponsor calling a team. Yes. Usually the way around. They meet, and Kodak is offering $10,000 a race. I don't think you can buy the lug nuts today for $10,000. Back then, that was not bad. They were offering $10,000 a race, and Larry said that they needed at least $15,000 a race. And the guy from Kodak literally got up without saying a word and left the room. That's making a point, isn't it? <laughs> Over $15,000, a difference of $5,000, what they were offering. But whatever conversations went on at Kodak, and Kodak came back to Larry and said, okay, you've got a deal, 15000 a race. And it turned into, Steve, at one time in the late 1980s, early 1990s, through mid-1990s, Kodak was probably one of the most recognizable sponsors on the circuit. And they were, and they got their money's worth because Morgan McClure was at that time a top team and they had Daytona 500 victories under their belts and Daytona 500 victory for a sponsor. Ooh, that's gold, man. That's gold. They weren't there quite yet. No. When the sponsorship first came on board. We will talk about Rick's second-place finish in the 1988 Firecracker 400 in our second segment. But then Rick ultimately decided to leave the team at the end of the 1989 season. Uh, Larry said it was basically over more money. Another team was offering him more, which left Morgan McClure Motorsports looking for another driver. And that's going to be in next week's segment. Another story. (laughs) And Steve, next week, we will talk to Larry about the Ernie Irvin years, the good times, and the bad. Steve, follow Brian Kelb on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens and check out his inventory at SpeedwayTSJ.Etsy.com. This week, our buddy Brian posted Dell Earnhardt T-shirts. He posted Rich Petty T-shirts. He posted Morgan McClure Motorsports T-shirts, Ernie Irvin, Sterling Marlin. He posted Dick Trickle, 
Brian could outfit an entire racetrack full of people. <laughs> You're good. And they would be very happy to wear it too. <laughs> so Steve, again, we say it every week, but the inventory that Brian has is just absolutely amazing. And you can check out what he has available on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens. And you can also check out his inventory at speedwaytsj.etsy.com. That's speedwaytsj.etsy.com. The July 7th, 1988 issue of Grand National Scene carried coverage of that year's Daytona summer race, and it led off with your commentary, as always. And Steve, this wasn't the lead in your commentary, but it was still a very, very, very powerful statement. You wrote, I can't remember a season, make that a half season, in which we have seen so many drivers injured. It's a war out there, and the casualties are mounting. And there are a great number of casualties in that first half of the season alone. And, Rick, you're about to explain them to us. Steve, you did go on to list a number of drivers who had paid a price in that battle. Richard Petty hurt his ankle during that vicious crash in the Daytona 500 and was then involved in a handful of other incidents that left him with five, five, Steve, completely destroyed race cars. And it also left him with banged up shoulders, legs, ribs, and various other parts. Yeah, Richard, unfortunately, had a streak of bad luck going on that time that I thought was really going to put him out of racing. If he was to get any more injuries, I'm not sure he could have continued. Ricky Rudd tore ligaments in his knee when he slammed into the turn two wall during the Winston at Charlotte, and he was still wearing a knee brace in July. So he was hurt. Rick Wilson injured his leg in the 600 at Charlotte when he also impacted the turn two wall. He kept racing, but he was also forced to turn his Morgan McClure Motorsports car over to other drivers when the pain became too intense to continue. Neil Bonnet wrecked for the second race in a row at Charlotte. The previous October, he had shattered his leg and still had a metal plate helping to hold things together. And Steve, this was your line about Neil. After the second Charlotte incident, he was lucky he did not re-injure the leg or sustain any other serious physical damage, although his cage was rattled. Now, Steve, is that where Earnhardt got that from? Well, I'd love to take credit for that, but I can't. (laughs) (laughs) That was not an unfamiliar phrase in racing at that time. And uh, Dale, he was fond of using it. Hey, man, don't let the facts get in the way of a good story. He got that straight from you, straight from Uh, the pages of Winston Cup saying. Okay, folks, think what you want. (laughs) (laughs) You are responsible. You are solely responsible for one of the most iconic lines in all of NASCAR history. (laughs) But, Steve, what the second Charlotte incident did do was force Neil to have surgery a couple of days after the Firecracker 400, and there was a two-week break after Daytona, so Neil wasn't going to miss any time behind the wheel. They were still banged up. Unbelievable. 
And Neil, ever ready with a quip, said, every time I just about get well, I try to knock another wall down. (laughs) (laughs) Good way of putting it, Neil. Steve, the 1988 May race weekend at Charlotte was rough. Not only did Ricky Rudd, Rick Wilson, and Neil Bonnet get hurt, Harry Gant also ended up with multiple breaks in his leg. And, Rick, as you well know, it wasn't over. Then you had Bobby Allison's career-ending wreck at Pocono. So even then, the theme of drivers being injured that you mentioned in your commentary This issue also carried coverage of that year's Bush Series race at Myrtle Beach. Larry Pollard made his return to the racetrack at Myrtle Beach after he had been injured pretty severely at Dover when he was driving in relief of his father-in-law, Harry Gant, who had been hurt at Charlotte. So, Steve, the bottom line is that drivers getting hurt in 1988, early in the season, was an all-too-common occurrence. Yeah, and you could say it was all coincidence, which it probably was, that many injuries in the first half of a season. But, Rick, let's not forget that the cars were not nearly as sturdy or as safe as they are now. So having those injuries might have been somewhat a result of that. Deb Williams's column in this issue outlined her stance on the difference between calling a NASCAR event a race or a show. And let's just say that Deb was very, very firmly in the team race camp. (laughs) And this was was 1988. And when I came on board in 1994 and was on the road for the first time, full time in 1995, let's just say again, that she was still very firmly in the team (laughs) race camp. (laughs) Deb said in her column, according to that old handy reference book, Webster's Dictionary, a race is a competition of speed in running, skating, riding, etc., whereas a show is defined as a spectacular pompous display, a public display or exhibition as of art, animals, flowers, automobiles, etc. The only connection the word show has to racing is in horse or dog racing when it refers to the third finishing position. That's bringing it down pretty good. (laughs) (laughs) And Dale was serious about it. Oh, yeah. But let me give you a lesson in journalism. One of the things you try to avoid when you write is using the same word twice in one or two sentences or even in the same paragraph. So if you write, the race was full of action. It was the kind of race people want to see period what you look at that and say i can't use race twice so what happens is <laughs> you try to get inventive with that second word and that's where show and event come into play now that's just journalism you know yeah she's right but it's, it's very difficult racing to try to escape using the same word in two consecutive sentences and that's where event and show come into play right or wrong <laughs> And Steve, that is something that all journalists do face is they tend to use, at least I do, they tend to use phrases a lot. When I work on a book, especially, I actually keep a list of phrases that I tend to use a lot. And I'll keep that list. And as the process draws to an end, I'll go through and I'll do a search for that phrase and I'll go back and I'll rewrite it. 
Yeah. Well, in order to be a little bit well, better rider. That, that's a good way to do it. As for the race coverage in this event, we'd better move on before we get in too much trouble with Deb. I've been there. <laughs> I've done that. You wouldn't dig it. <laughs> I'm with you. Let's go. <laughs> Steve Darrell Waltrip won the poll for the Pepsi Firecracker 400 that year with a speed of 193.819 miles an hour. Of course, this was the first year that NASCAR had the new restrictor plates. And Bill Elliott was more than nine miles an hour slower. Nine miles an hour, Steve. The year before at Talladega, 1987, he had qualified at 212.809 miles an hour. Right. And this year, 1988, for the Firecracker 400 at Daytona, he qualified at 184.502 miles an hour. And, Steve, that sounds so strange to call 184 miles an hour slow, but 184 miles an hour was way off the pace. Absolutely, it was off the pace, and it was really hard to figure out how Bill could run that slow after what he and his brother Ernie had shown us in previous years. Steve, I think he had all but consigned himself to just putting in laps on the racetrack and coming away with whatever finish that he could. And he started 38th in the event, but he wound up in victory lane. And at that time, it was the farthest back a winner had ever started at Daytona. And it was very close to the NASCAR record. Johnny Mance and Fine Flock both started 43rd in races. Johnny in the Southern 500, Fonny at Raleigh. They started 43rd and won each race. Evidently, Ernie Elliott was still trying to figure out the restrictor plate. <laughs> yeah, and I think that has a lot to do with it. There were just three cautions in the event, but by the time the second one came out on lap 111, Bill had almost been lapped by then later Rick Wilson. Now, Larry McClure mentioned that Bill had come from three laps down in this race. It wasn't three laps. It was nearly one lap, but he did have to come from a long way back to win. And nobody thought he would. And I think he was one of them. (laughs) Bill said in the race lead, I couldn't draft around anybody. The only thing that saved me was I could beat a bunch of cars in the corners even though they could go right back by me on the straightaways. Now, on the last lap, Rick pulled to the inside as they went through turns three and four, and coming off the final corner, they actually beat and banged a little bit. Yeah, they were beating and banging. It was a great race to the finish. Bill said, I wasn't sure when Rick would make his move, but it seemed to me he did it a little early. The only thing that saved me was when he passed me, he didn't clear me. He got to my left front wheel with his rear bumper, and when you get to that point, the other guy has a chance to draft back by. That was the only thing that let me get back by him. When it was over, I had to ask who won the race. I didn't know. Now, Bill said that he thought that Rick made his move a little early. Turns three and four on the last lap. When else are you going to make it? (laughs) Well, that is true, but I think the difference was that Bill said that Rick did not clear him, and that gave Bill the opportunity to continue to move ahead in the draft and eventually win the race. So I think that's what he meant by saying that Rick made his move too early. Rick said, I got around Bill for a bit, and I thought I had him, but he came back on me. When we got to the flat part of the track out of the turn, that was it. We started rubbing. He rubbed me, and I rubbed him right back. 
How many times did we touch? I don't know. I lost count. All I know is that you can't get much closer than that. And no, you can't. No, you can't. It was a terrific close finish. But as we have already established, Rick might have won that race had he been able to clear Bill. Just behind Bill and Rick at the checkered flag was a three-wide battle for third place between Dell Earnhardt on the outside, Phil Parsons on the inside, and Darrell Waltrip between them kind of being bounced around like a pinball. (laughs) (laughs) Not in a good position. Phil took third. Dale took fourth and Daryl took fifth place. And Daryl, he was really bouncing back and forth. So that was not, as no. you say, a good position. No, you don't want to be on the inside. I think most any driver would tell you, you don't want to be the inside of a sandwich. <laughs> uh, three wide at either Talladega or Daytona. The man in the middle, they tell me, is always the one that's going to have trouble. Five teams were fined $5,000 each for having modified intake manifolds. So they were maybe kind of sort of trying to get around the restrictor plate. And the teams that were fined were the ones that fielded cars for Davey Allison, Buddy Baker, Kelly Yarbrough, Ken Bouchard, and Del Jarrett. So there is four NASCAR Hall of Famers. You also had Ken Bouchard. But according to Dick Beatty, some of these teams had three or four thousandths of an inch of metal shaved off the runners where the intake connects to the head. Two of them had three or four thousandths of an inch missing from where the carburetor hooks to the intake. One had a crack in the bottom of the intake. And one had illegally bored holes that had been repaired, but then the repairs didn't hold. Now, the repairs might not have necessarily been repairs. They might have been designed to fall away. (laughs) That's right. This is called getting around that old restrictor plate however we can, but they didn't do it. These teams were docked $5,000 each. Imagine a team today having illegally bored holes in their engine. How about 10 times $5,000 fine? Oh, (laughs) You're talking suspension. Oh, yeah. And worse than suspension, you're talking about blowing up social media. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, Dick Beatty said in the SOC item, I'm certainly not saying that the teams are trying to sidestep the rules. Come on, Dick. Of course they were trying to sidestep the rules. What I'm saying is the manifolds weren't right, whether it was meant to be or not meant to be. Now, whether it was meant to be or not meant to be, old Hamlet didn't have anything on Dick Beatty. Oh, how about that? Hamlet was, Hamlet was talking about suicide. <laughs> Dick little, Beatty was just being diplomatic. A little Shakespeare in your scene vault podcast today. <laughs> we are getting uptown. We got culture. <laughs> and Steve, another item in the scene on the circuit section, A.J. Foyt butted heads with NASCAR again. After he missed the Daytona driver's meeting, he was fined a hundred bucks and sent to the rear of the field from what would have been 18th on the starting grid. Now, AJ had been in Cleveland the day before the race qualifying for the Cleveland Grand Prix cart race and didn't return to his hotel room in Daytona until around 1 a.m. He left his hotel at seven the morning of the race and said that he missed the driver's meeting because he got caught up in traffic. Now, according to AJ, he was only eight minutes late and that the meeting had already ended by the time he got there. Now, 
NASCAR said he was more like 20 minutes late. I don't see a meeting ending in eight minutes. Do you? I don't see a meeting starting eight <laughs> minutes late. <laughs> but AJ was mad and said that had it not been for his respect for Bill France Sr. and Bill France Jr., he would have packed up and not raced at Daytona. Now, Steve, this is over a $100 fine, a $100 right. fine and well, losing his starting spot. Well, AJ has always been pretty forceful about his uh, opinions and his beliefs, so none of this really surprises me. AJ said in the SOC item, I felt it was a very rotten deal. I think the Francis need to look at their officials. And it was the second time that year that AJ had been on the wrong side of the law in NASCAR. At Talladega, AJ and Alan Kowicki had gotten together and both were sent to the pits to serve time in the penalty box. AJ Foyt, yeah, I can see him serving time in the penalty box. Yeah. Alan Kowicki? No. Uh, that's out of character for him. Wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, by all means. But when you tangle with AJ, uh, Sometimes the results are not what you would like. When he left pit road afterward, AJ's exit was deemed unsafe by NASCAR, and he was black flagged again. <laughs> he honored that black flag by coming back around and roaring down pit road in what NASCAR again deemed to be unsafe. He was black flagged a third time. <laughs> He came back down pit road, locked his brakes, and spun at the garage entrance. So This is a battle of wills, don't you think? So AJ was literally spun out about this penalty. <laughs> he was fined $5,000 and suspended six months. Les Richter, who was one of the vice presidents of competition at the time, he eventually lifted the suspension but increased the fine to $7,500 and placed AJ on probation for the next two cup races in which he competed. Now, Steve, life is never dull around AJ Foyt. Never is dull. No matter if he's racing an Indy car, a sprint car, or a stock car, AJ Foyt has always got his own sense of what's right and wrong. And when he feels he's been wrong, he's going to say that. And he's going to take action if he can. And sometimes that action, like going down pit road too fast, is going to come up and bite him. And it did this time. Steve, I absolutely love how things come together with the same vault. Larry McClure talked this week about how Kodak had sponsored a team early on in the 1986 season, only to have that team really struggle and the sponsor eventually move over to Morgan McClure. I didn't go looking for this feature. At all. I had no idea that it was in here. But when I went to pick out this issue because of Rick Wilson's second place finish for Morgan McClure Motorsports to kind of tie it into the interview, I start going through it. And lo and behold, here's a feature story about Eddie Beerswell and his sponsor's struggles with Kodak and this new team. And the team was one that was owned by a guy by the name of Buster Maston. And Eddie said in this feature story, that team started coming apart. We were looking for the long-term aspects of it, and it turned out to be quite a short-term deal for myself and Kodak as well. I'm just happy Kodak is still here in racing. The way things were going, I really thought that would scare them off. 
I knew there were problems when things weren't being set up as far as the shop and the cars. We were getting a lot of people's old equipment rather than some new stuff. Some stuff that I thought we needed to start off a new team. You can't start off a new team with used equipment and hope to do anything, Rick. No, you can't. I think that was the difference with a team like Morgan McClure. They started off with G.C. Spencer's stuff, but gradually upgraded as time went on. And, you know, yeah, it turned into what they did. This story on Eddie Bierschwell mentions what he did as a full-time job. Do you remember what he did full-time? Wasn't he an undertaker? He was. He and his family owned four funeral homes in the San Antonio, Texas area. And during the week, he was a full-time funeral director. Funeral director and a race car driver. It's hard to quit the two of those. (laughs) Now, Steve, I am good friends with the owner of the local funeral home here. We actually did our training for my first half marathon together. And let's just say that I learned more about being a mortician during that training than I ever, ever, ever wanted to know. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure you did, Rick. Another time I showed up for a visitation and David being David, he, he saw me and I had just had a haircut that day. And so I had hairs on my shoulders and everything. And he came up to him and he started brushing me off and everything. And he said, well, I just can't get this off of you. Just come on back to the back and I've got a brush back there and I'll brush you off. So you can be presentable. And I you followed him. It. Did you go? I followed him for a couple of steps and then I realized what the back meant. <laughs> and I said, David, I'm sorry, but you and I are only going to be back there by ourselves one time and I ain't going to have anything to say about it. <laughs> Wise decision. <laughs> Hello, I'm Terry Labonte, and you're listening to the Scene Vault Podcast. Weekly accountability update, Tom. I now stand at 4,865.52 miles, which leaves me 134.48 miles short of 5,000. And Steve, right now, I'm feeling every single one of those 4,865 miles. <laughs> I am not surprised, but Rick, you got to ignore that feeling and go for it. <laughs> Saturday, I wound up with swimmer's ear, and I literally could not hear out of my right ear just from the fluid that had built up in my ear. I'm just going to assume that it was sweat that got in there and and refused to come out. And so I could not hear out of my right ear. That's on top of the blisters on my feet that are giving me fits. Well, Rick, you're going to have these physical problems when you're trying to reach a goal that is going to be the greatest of your life by all means. (laughs) So if you do happen to see me crawling down the sidewalk in Yakinville, North Carolina, how about stopping and and helping me out a little bit? (laughs) That'll be Rick playing with pain. (laughs) 